hero of the faith, faith because of what he did out of obedience. Um, and I think we love this Abraham. We love to look at him as an ideal. Um, I would actually, though, like to go back to the very first time we're introduced to Abraham, uh, before he was a legend, before he was a hero of the faith, because I want to kind of explore how a man goes from a polytheistic idol worshiper living in Mesopotamia in 2000 BC, in the course of 10 chapters from Genesis about 12 to 22, he becomes this, uh, not only a monotheist, but the father of the, hero, the Jewish people and the hero of the Christian faith. That's an amazing journey. And it's not all highlights, right? If you know the story well, there's, there's a few missteps in there. There's some wandering, there's some indecision, and there's a fair amount of disobedience. Um, along with the obedience that he's credited for as, as he journeyed through life. I think this question matters. Uh, I think because each one of us is on the same type of journey. Uh, some of us are very new to the journey. You know, uh, we might be new to our faith. Some of us might be somewhere deep in the weeds in our journey, and maybe we're mired in a sin pattern or some kind of addiction or something, a cycle we just can't break. Um, some of us might be in a very different place. It could be a very easy, uh, calm plane or field where you could actually become a little bit apathetic or complacent in your faith, uh, especially in this culture we live in. And some of us might, be, might feel like we're stuck in a pit, someplace where you feel very tired, uh, very alone, uh, maybe very crushed by what life kind of throws our way. Wherever we are in that journey, I think the question we, we tend to ask ourselves is, how do I get from where I am to where I see Abraham was, this, this place of amazing faith and terrific obedience that gets him all of this uh, good copy? How is it that you, how do you do that? And so I want to try to, I want to try to explore that over a couple of weeks of how, how this happened and what the causes were. And so let's start at the very beginning. We're going to start at uh, verse 1131. And I'm going to read through 12.1 to get us started. So uh, hear God's word. Terah took Abraham, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of, Haran, of Terah were 205 years. And Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. This is a reading of God's word. Let me pray. Father, in your word, uh, not only is there truth, but your word is the truth. Uh, I pray that you would give us the, the discernment um, to understand it, the heart to hear it and obey it. Uh, I thank you with confidence in advance um, for the preparation that you've made um, for each of us uh, this morning. I pray all this with thanksgiving through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so this sounds like the beginning of the story, but it's actually not quite the beginning. If we jump to uh, Acts chapter 7, we hear Stephen in his testimony, tell us something that happened just before. Stephen says, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, Go from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. 
Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans to, and lived in Haran. So we have an initial call in Ur, and then a second call that we read in the first passage from Haran. Now, when they were in Ur, uh, they were, we know, idol worshipers. They were not Christians. They were not God-fearing uh, people. We know this because in Joshua chapter 24, uh, Joshua says, and he mentions by name, Terah, Abraham, and Nahor were idol worshipers. They served other gods. There's actually a story in the Jewish Midrash, and the Jewish Midrash is basically a, um, it's a, it's a commentary of certain books of the Old Testament. And it was originally oral, but it was eventually written down sometime after Jesus. So very old stories. There's a story in the Midrash uh, about this time in Ur, when Abraham was a younger man. And what the story says is that um, Terah actually ran an idol shop. Okay? He manufactured idols and sold them. And he had to leave his shop in the care of his son one day. And he was a little nervous about doing this because his son had already been getting these messages about maybe a contradictory faith than what his father was living. So he leaves his son in charge, and Abraham, once he has kind of the, the all clear, he grabs his walking stick, and he starts smashing every idol in the shop, right? He busts every single one of them into pieces, except for the biggest one. And the biggest one, he props his walking stick next to, and he waits. His dad comes home, or back to the shop, looks at all of his inventory destroyed, and he gets very upset, and he says, son, what happened? Who, who would do this? Who hates us so much that they would destroy my livelihood? And Abraham said, father, it's not what you think. I saw it all. That biggest idol grabbed my walking stick, and he smashed all these other idols. Abraham's father said, son, you know, and I know, that that's a lie. That God could never smash those other idols. And Abraham said, well, then, Father, why do we worship it? And that, in the Hebrew tradition, is kind of a, gives us a sense of the beginning of that monotheistic faith that was planted by God in Abraham's heart. So it's from there, from Ur, that they traveled um, to Haran. And I want to show you a map so we can get a sense of how this happened. So Haran, you see way up north at the very top, so they started in Ur in the bottom right-hand corner, and they walked along the Euphrates most likely for maybe uh, six, seven hundred miles. And just about where they would turn west and go south, because they're following the Fertile Crescent, they're avoiding the desert, and they would turn south and go into Canaan, they did something interesting. Uh, Terah led them north, and he followed a little tributary up into Haran. And that is where they settled from the original call in Ur. And that makes sense if you think about it because Canaan was a wilderness. With the exception of maybe a city like Jericho, it was completely unknown. Haran, however, was a uh, colony of Ur. So going there would mean you've got the same laws, the same religious practices, the same culture. Very comfortable place. And so, wouldn't you know, uh, that's exactly what they do. They, they stop in Haran, and they settle there. And that is where they stay until God begins to work again in the life of this family and in this man. He starts to strip away all of the, um, I would say, all the safety nets, all of the impediments, all the things that are making it hard 
for Abraham to completely obey the, the, the call that God made. The first thing that we see in the, in the next slide is that Terah dies. Um, I'm not saying that God kills him, but uh, 205 is young um, for this time and place, so it's, it's kind of a mysterious death. He dies when he's, when he's 205 and he leaves Abraham fatherless. Uh, Terah at this point has been the advice and the authority, kind of the, the, the driving force of that family, and now, and now that's, that's gone. Uh, so Abraham sort of inherits the role of, of the person that sort of decides what we're going to do next. The next thing that happens is God says, you need to go from this country. In other words, you need, you need to leave Haran. You, you left Ur, but now we need to leave Haran, and we need to get to Canaan. Um, now, this is a place that Abraham and his family have done very well in, right? Verse 12.5 says that they acquired lots of um, people and possessions in Haran, and God tells them that they need to leave these comforts, these laws, these traditions, these uh, religious practices all behind. Too many distractions. Finally, God tells him to leave his kin. Um, so he, he even wants to eliminate those distractions, apparently. He doesn't want to compete with that as well. Now, we know, most of us, that Lot chooses to go with Abraham, and Abraham allows that to happen. It's not too much longer in the story, and we'll talk about this next week, that Abraham, I think, sees the wisdom in what God was saying because he, he decides to split from Lot because they're, not, they're unable to get along because of how much stuff they have, and they split apart. And at that point, Abraham is truly isolated from what would have been his future. Um, it's hard for us to imagine this, but in that culture, for Abraham to, to uh, break away from Lot was basically saying goodbye to his purpose in life, is to pass on his name, to pass on his identity, uh, everything that mattered to him. And when he said goodbye to Lot, he's basically saying goodbye to that plan. So God has basically got him to a point where he has walked away from his past, He's walked away from his future, and he's walked away from all those things around him that make him feel comfortable and safe. And it's at this point, I think, that when God says to him something along the lines of, Abraham, I'm going to be your shield, I think that really means something then. And it's at this point that God can start to do amazing things in Abraham's life. Uh, things that are frankly far beyond what Abraham was imagining for his own life. He's sort of in a position to do. But before we kind of go down that trajectory of all the wonderful things that happened, I want to just stop and spend a little bit of time talking about the, um, the, the, the pit stop in Haran and, and what we might learn from that. Because frankly, when I read that story, though ultimately he obeyed, it does make me think about, uh, in my own life, am I ever guilty of what I would call settling in Haran? So this idea that each one of us has been called by God uh, in Christ, but perhaps, you know, and some days are better than others, we're only partially obedient to that call. Some days, I think, we're downright, downright resistant to it, right? To what we're being called to. Um, we know that we've left the total idolatry and rebellion of, of this place called Ur, right? And we're happy. But we're not quite ready to follow all the way to, the, to that abundant joy that God promises, you know, in the promised land. 
we get into this kind of place in the middle where we try to kind of hold a little bit of a balance. And so the question I have isn't so much, is that true? Because when I look at my life, I have to say, well, of course it's true. There's just no doubt. I would, I, I, I would be a hypocrite to say it's not. The question I have today is, why is that true? Why would we ignore God's call to the promised land? Why would we pull up short? Why would we hedge our bets? What causes us to do that? And in thinking about that, I thought of a couple of reasons, at least that, that apply to me for sure, and I feel like probably apply to, to more people as well. And the first one that I would say, oh, I'm sorry, we can go to the next slide. And the next one, and the next one, and the next one. Sorry, there we are. So the first reason would be for why we settle in Haran would be that we claim that we're not getting clear direction, right? That's the reason. That's the reason that I'm kind of holding back is because God's not being clear, either in his word that I read or in my prayer life, something's missing, and so I'm just going to wait until I'm sure. Um, the way I, I, I used to do this even more when I was younger, I had this, this thought that if God would simply give me a vision, right, like I, I think, God, just make the entire sky turn red, and then I'll believe you totally forever, and so will everybody else. Just do that one thing. It's so much more efficient than the Bible. You know, you'll convert <laughs> the whole world. So I would want this vision like Abraham had and all these other people in the Old Testament. It's like, why do they get that? Why do they get life-changing experiences and pillars of fire and angels and swords and all this? And I feel like, you know, here's what God gives us, the Bible. And not only is it just a book, you have to read it. And so I feel a little bit cheated. He's like, well, thanks. You know, I feel like I kind of got the short end of that stick on that. Um, but you know what? I think about this, and here's what I've realized as I've gotten older. So me in college, I was all about, give me the life-changing experience, God, and as soon as you give it to me, I'm there. I'm going to be so enthusiastic. I'm going to be such an amazing believer. Now I look back and I say, you know what? Here's what I've realized. I have had so many life-changing experiences. I have had so many life-changing experiences that I can't even remember them anymore. There's life-changing experiences I've had where I, I remember saying something to the effect of, this changes everything. And then nothing changed. Or I've had experiences that made me say, um, from now on, such and such and such. And then the now on never happens because my resolve kind of melts away along with the memory of the event. It just disappears. And I think you guys have the same thing. I mean, these, these events that are incredibly important to us one day just sort of fade away. And so it makes me realize that we really should pity Abraham, that all he had were these visions and these, these, these uh, voices and, and, and um, conversations with God that, that he could hear or see, but that weren't written down. It makes me think, you know, whenever I'm doing anything important, whether it's a mortgage or buying a car, whatever, the advice you always get, or, or let's say you're applying for a job and they're offering you the terms, what, is, what do people always say? Get it in writing. Just get it in writing. That's the best thing. Get it in writing. Well, God gave it to us in writing, right? That's the blessing he gave us. He put it in writing. So now when we have doubts, when our memories fade, when our recollections are a little fuzzy, we can go right back to it and see the same thing again and say, that's right, that it, that's right, that's what he said. It's an amazing blessing. So instead of saying, gee whiz, thank you, God, I tend to say, thank you, God, uh, for giving us that. So I don't really have a very good excuse to say that he doesn't give me great experiences, but I could still accuse God 
of maybe not responding in prayer the way that I'm looking for. And the way I look at this is like, uh, when I'm on my cell phone, if you guys ever had this where you're talking on your cell phone and the connection is very bad, and you can't hear what the other person is saying, or you can't hear them at all, and my immediate thought is, there's something wrong with your phone. You need to fix your phone. You've gone through a tunnel or something. It's your problem that you need to fix. It's not my phone. I mean, I can hear my voice perfectly. So it's not me. It's you. And so my, my thought is, you know, you need to fix whatever the problem is and then get back to me. Maybe they'll call back. And I think I treat God the same way sometimes in prayer. If I'm not getting immediate feedback, if I'm not getting a clear message, there's something God must be doing wrong. He's not paying attention or he's not giving a clear message. I'm doing everything right, right? But he's not. Or... Instead of that, it might be, uh, have you guys ever seen when somebody walks down the street and they're talking on their phone like this? You know, they kind of walk, da, 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 da. I love the, the straightforwardness of that gesture because you're basically saying, there's only one person here that has anything that's worth listening to. You know, so I don't even have to bother with this. You know, I just pop, pop, pop. And I feel like sometimes in prayer life, we do the very same thing. You feel like, or I, I guess I am, I'm sort of dictating to God, maybe it's a list of requests, it might even be a confession, but it's definitely one way. I sort of download, 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 and then I break the connection when I'm done. Right, good night, hit the, hit the sack. And what's happening there is, that's not a conversation. Right, that's a voicemail. That's where I'm just dropping a message that God will pick up later. Um, and so then I wonder why I'm not getting like clear communication. I realize, well, I'm not really, I'm not really making much room you know, there for it to happen. So the the... The excuse of unclear communication is a hard one for me to really justify. The second excuse that I, that I when I think about, well, why do I pit stop and haram? Why, do I not, why am I not willing to wall away? The second one is that um, we like it here. Uh, this, this place in between. It's very comfortable, right? Because when I left my old life, there was these certain things that I knew were very bad for me and very wrong, and I was happy to walk away from them. But there were a few other things that were kind of like, oh, I'm a little up in the air. There were some TV shows and movies that, okay, they're not the most edifying, but I mean, they weren't that bad. And they were entertaining. And maybe there were relationships with different people that maybe they weren't uh, the most beneficial, but I enjoyed them. They were fun. Uh, and maybe there were just behaviors that weren't the best thing for me. But I took along the things that helped me stay happy, because that's kind of my job, is to make sure that I'm happy on this mission. And those things might be things that just make me happy. They might be things that kind of medicate me a little bit. But those are the things I'm going to hold on to. And then my idea is I'll swirl in some of these new blessings that I get from, you know, being a child of God. So things like a church community, right? Just having friends at church. People that are sort of on the same walk with you and they have the same concerns that you do and the same questions that you do. And there's some, there's some edifying that happens with this and it feels good. And there's relationships that, that come with that that are encouraging. And maybe I clean up my act a little bit. And that feels good. You kind of get happy when you throw some bad habits away. And so I create this custom mix of what I want. And it satisfies me. I like it very much. And I think the reason it satisfies me is because of how ignorant I am. I'm so ignorant of what, when, when Jesus talks about abundant joy, I have no idea what that really means. I haven't experienced that in my life. So I settle very easily. 
And I think this is what C.S. Lewis means with a quote that he gives in The Weight of Glory, an essay, in a sermon. And you guys have probably all heard this quote, but I love this quote. It was very convicting for me the first time I heard it, and, and every time since, it's always meant something to me. So I'm going to read it, because I think it applies here. He says, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I think that's right. I think that's right. I think we hear things or read things in the Bible like, uh, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And we say, and Jesus talks about abundant life. Uh, he talks about exceeding joy. Paul gives us blessings like, may you be filled with all joy and peace and abounding hope. We hear those promises. And my reaction where I am is I'll say, hmm, you know, and then I'll kind of wonder, will I still get to watch whatever I want on Netflix? You know, uh, is it going to be all that I want? And, and, I, and I ask myself, why is that? Um, it's because I like it where I am. I don't want to go any further. And the, the third and kind of root reason for both of the first ones I gave is that we don't trust God's plan. I know that I don't. I know that I don't trust what he has in store for me, and that's why I'm trying to create my own plan. I think about God's plan kind of like the way I think about it. I've been, I have been uh, introduced to this thing called the Whole30 diet, and it's like all these other diets where it's like the promise is, look, you can't eat refined sugar, and you can't eat carbohydrates, and you can't eat stuff with whatever, all the stuff you're not supposed to eat. You're not supposed to eat that, and if you do it, you'll be healthier, you'll live longer, you'll have a happier you know, life. I hear that. I, when people tell me about the Whole30 diet, and I tried it. That's not true. <laughs> what happens is, what the real, the real Whole30, or, or any of those diets, what they're really saying is, look, we're going to make every day miserable. <laughs> but in return, you're going to have many more of them. And, and that's the Whole30 promise. That's all those diets. I feel like sometimes that's what God is promising too. Right? He's saying, this is going to be good for you. And it's going to kill some of your joy, but it's the right thing to do, and it'll give you a long life and prosper. And you sort of say, I'm not so sure. The scariest prayer that I have ever prayed, and I think it's the scariest prayer that we can pray if, if you sort of share this, this feeling that I'm describing, is the one that Jesus taught us to pray, and the one that he prayed that night in the garden. He said, um, not as I will, but as you will. Not as I will, but as you will. I have prayed that um, more than a few times. And every time I've prayed it, uh, if I'm praying it fervently, meaningfully, like I'm really feeling it, I'm scared. You know, I pray that with a little hitch in my voice or with a little like, <laughs> you know, just kind of a shudder because I feel like I've just suddenly given God permission to do something awful. You know, he, he's going to make me pay for that one. He was just waiting for the opening, right? As if somehow we're controlling God and we get to decide when he's going to really do the, do the major work. And I can't help but feeling that. And that might feel, you know, it's kind of funny, but it's also profoundly sad. 
It is profoundly sad that this God that we worship, that that's our attitude. If, it, if you ever share that with me, that, that our attitude is, I just don't like the idea of you having your way in my life. It just, it frankly scares me. So we don't trust God. We saw that with Abraham. Uh, actually, we saw it with Adam, right? Very first man, we saw this issue, not trusting God. Then we, we've seen it today with, with Abraham, kind of like a, a start-stop. We see it with every single person in history, except for one. Um, this issue is, has, has been shared, and it's because it's in our nature. I think in our fallen nature, we're just not able to trust God completely. But I think that that doesn't mean that we still don't have the challenge to trust him at least enough we have to trust him enough to follow him where he would lead us. Uh, each one of us is feeling these calls, right? So all of our calls might be a little different, but our response needs to be the same. And that's a challenge if you don't trust the person that's calling. So the, the last question is, well, how do you do that? How do you trust somebody more? How do you just make that happen? Um, that's a very good question. So I think over the next couple of weeks, we'll touch on this again. But the first thing I want to give as a, as a response to that might seem obvious, but it's something I really struggle to do. Uh, in my experience, if I want to trust somebody, it's very important that I know them. It's very hard for me to trust somebody I don't know. So if we're not willing to put the time in to get to know God through his word and through prayer, the things that he's made available to us, then it's unlikely that we're going to trust him more than we do today. It's unlikely that that relationship is going to grow if we're not willing to get to know him better. So the first thing is just kind of obvious. Spend time with the person that you're trying to get to know so that that trust can grow. The second one would be simply, uh, and this applies a lot. I find this is the answer to a lot of questions. Look to Jesus. Uh, I think when you look to Jesus, and here in particular, what I'm thinking about is, you know, there were two times in Jesus' life in particular that I'm thinking of when he was called by God uh, to, to an extreme test. And, there, and, and in both cases, God provided, right? God provided everything that Jesus needed for those tests in advance. Um, the, one happened in a desert, one happened in a garden. So two completely different environments, but two very similar tests in terms of what Jesus went through. In both these tests, what was happening, in addition to kind of the surface that we read, is really Jesus' very identity were being, it was being questioned. Who are you? And if you question Jesus' identity, you're questioning his mission, right? His, his, his mission is wrapped up in his identity. His mission is fruitless, if he's not who he says he is. And so it's in the desert that we remember it's the devil that says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, then turn this stone to bread, right? That's this question, are you really who you say? The same thing happens on the cross. Remember the people that are standing around Jesus, the same question again, if you are the son of God, save yourself. They're both attacking his identity and attacking his mission. Now, what's incredible about this is not only that Jesus is victorious in both of these situations, which both of them would destroy any of us, obviously, not only that he's victorious, but that providentially, 
in God's word, we see the preparation that God went through with Jesus so that he would be able to endure these trials. And what I'm referring to is if you look right before the time in the desert, remember what happened? He was baptized. And in that baptism, the clouds broke open and the spirit descended like a dove in power on Jesus, filling him. Same kind of thing happened as he was on his way to Jerusalem for his passion. He had a mountaintop experience, the right kind, a transfiguration, where for a few moments he dwelled in and experienced his full radiance and glory as he, as he would have after he rose. And he, and he had this amazing, uh, in both cases, this amazing connection, I think, um, and an empowerment. And if you remember what God said to him at both these times before these two trials, I mean, he could have said a lot of things, but both times he said the same thing. You are my son. And as a matter of fact, he says, you are my beloved son. So God knows exactly what's needed for the hardest calls in our life. And he's preparing, he shows us, preparing Jesus in advance for what's going to happen. So if God's able to do that in those situations, I would think we would have some confidence they handle the ones that are kind of getting thrown our way uh, when, when we're answering his call. And it's because of what Jesus did on that cross, that, that you know, as the song says, that beautiful, scandalous night, because of what he did on that cross, now we are sons and daughters of God. And for that reason, just like Jesus, we can respond to God's call with great confidence and we can follow wherever God would call us. Let's pray. Father, you have called us out of rebellion. Um, we thank you for that. And at the same time, we resist you. Please forgive us. We celebrate your promise to never abandon or give up on those that you have called. Give us not only the wisdom to understand your will, but give us, Lord, the heart to obey it. We ask this in a confident hope of abundant life and exceeding joy that you have in store for us. And we ask it in the name of our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.